Hey guys, I'm Dr. Ambreen and I'm doing a podcast for Scrubbed In. I'm covering a meningitis case that I came across in A&E during one of my day shifts. So you are the medical SHO and your registrar hands over a patient for you to go and clerk. Let's call our patient Susan. You are told Susan is a 38-year-old female who has presented with a headache, lethargy and has been triaged in A&E. You enter the cubicle and immediately notice Susan has an IV bag of fluids running looks quite pale in her complexion and is sitting with her partner. After introducing yourself and confirming the patient's details, you divulge in a bit of history. Susan tells you she's had a worsening headache for three days. Seems to be a generalised headache which has now travelled into her neck. The headache is more of a dull pain rather than a shooting or a sharp pain. She also tells you she has some neck stiffness which seems to have come on yesterday. Other symptoms Susan complains to you about are a three-day history of a loss of appetite, vomiting, generalised weakness and pain specifically in her lower limbs. She reports this weakness came on quite suddenly and it's very abnormal for her. She tells you she's a school teacher at primary school and also volunteers for her local charity shop. She's active and runs with her husband twice a week and drinks a glass of wine with her husband on a Friday evening. She's never smoked before. Now just taking a step back, it's always important to gauge the patient's baseline before they came into hospital because this gives us an indication of how acute the deterioration really is. In this case, it seems as Susan is severely off her baseline. So as Susan is speaking to you, you notice she's struggling to keep her eyes open and keeps covering them with her hand. When you dig a little further, she tells you that this has occurred in the past couple of hours. Now again, let's take a step back and it's important to understand and explore the nature of the headache. Is it a frontal headache? Is it a throbbing or a sharp pain? Does the pain radiate anywhere? Are there any changes in eyesight? Is there any associated photophobia with it or neck stiffness? And also you must ask them, is this the worst headache that they have ever experienced? All these questions can lead you to a differential diagnosis list, so history taking is key. Now moving on to the examination. Before I discuss this, have a quick think and jot down what specific focus examination you would like to perform, providing you know that the patient's observations are stable at the moment and she's scoring a zero on her news chart. However, previously she was scoring a three for low blood pressure and a spike in temperature. You go on to performing a cranial nerve examination and you find that Susan has photophobia and you are unable to examine her pupillary reflex accommodation and visual fields. You also find she's unable to move her neck. At this point, your alarm bells should be going off for your main differential diagnosis, which should be meningitis. So you perform a few specialized tests to look for meningism. So you look for the Koenig sign, which is resistance to extending the knee whilst the hip is flexed and the Brudzinski sign, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, which is flexion of the hips and knees in response to neck flexion. You also perform an upper and lower limb neurological exam and you find that the power in her lower limbs is three and her upper limbs it's five. The rest of the neurological examiner upper and lower limbs is normal. For completion, her abdomen was soft and non-tender and chest was clear on auscultation. At this point, you should definitely be thinking that meningitis is one of your top differential diagnoses. So how are you going to investigate for this? Take a moment to write down the investigations that you're going to be ordering or doing to rule out meningitis as your main differential. 
So you take a full blood count, urea and electrolytes, calcium, magnesium, clotting profile and blood cultures. You discuss with your registrar regarding a lumbar puncture and they also agree it is crucial and safe to perform it as there are no signs of raised intracranial pressure on examination. You also order a CT head to rule out other intracranial pathology. The main investigation that I want to discuss in this podcast is the lumbar puncture. As I know for final year medical students, it's often asked what exactly in the lumbar puncture findings is indicative of a bacterial meningitis. So you perform the lumbar puncture and send off the cerebrospinal fluid for gram stain, cell count and differential, glucose and protein and the culture. You get the results back. Well, in real life, actually, it takes a few days, but in this case, you get them back immediately. Um, the gram stain shows a gram-negative diplococci. This is highly suggestive of meningococcal infection, and a CSF culture will confirm this. A high cell count, low glucose, and high protein. Now, I always think of the bacteria consuming glucose as energy and producing proteins as a byproduct. The cell count will be high because the bacteria is replicating and your body is trying to respond to it. You now get a call from a microbiology consultant and are told that the patient's CSF and blood culture have both come back as positive for N meningitides. As the patient has a positive blood culture, this means they have a meningococcal septicemia, and this is a notifiable disease, so you should report it to Public Health England immediately. Microbiology consultant also outlines the antibiotic regime for the patient taking their allergies into account. So, as instructed by the microbiology consultant, you notify Public Health England of this case. At this point, PHE will advise you and your nurses who have been in close contact with the patient to report to Occupational Health immediately, as you might need prophylactic antibiotics, as well as any family members who have been living in close contact with the patient will also need prophylactic antibiotics. Now, in this case, we all needed prophylactic antibiotics. So now moving on to an official management plan. So I went to Warwick Medical School and they really hammered the biopsychosocial model when approaching any patient's management. Although at the time I thought, oh God, another model to revise and go by. Actually, it's a really great model um, and really allows you to treat a patient holistically. So the biological component is comprised of the medical treatment you'll be giving the patient. As our patient is septic, it's ideal to commence the sepsis 6 bundle. In this way, you're ensuring that the patient has the appropriate supportive care whilst all the other investigations are taking place in the background. In this case, we were advised by microbiology to commence a broad-spectrum antibiotic whilst we get the culture results back so we can home in on a more focused antibiotic regime. So it is important to get microbiology involved as early as possible, especially if you are suspecting meningitis. One thing I learned specifically from this case is that meningitis patients um, often present with hypokalemia and hypermagnesemia. So it's very important to replace potassium and magnesium and to replace any other electrolyte disturbances. So to prevent any neurological complications developing from the bacterial meningitis, you can give a short course of steroids, in this case dexamethasone. So that's the biological part of this model. The psychological and social aspect of this treatment model um, tying together and they both account for the patient's mental state of mind and what their coping strategies will be once they are discharged. How will this patient's admission affect them at home? Do they have any addictive habits that this illness may exacerbate, such as drinking alcohol and smoking? Will the patient need support in moving around at home to get back to baseline? What are their family and home circumstances like? Do they have any social support or do they live by themselves? How will they go about their daily activities if they live alone and are not able to get back to baseline yet? How many people are dependent on this patient and will they be affected while the patient's recovering? And does this put the patient 
at an increased risk of fall at home. So this information is usually gathered by conversations with the patient, but I find our very helpful physiotherapy and occupational health teams are very skilled in speaking to patients and their families and trying to find this information out for us. So as a doctor, I go through their notes to understand my patient more holistically, and this enables me to identify any needs that I need to put into place before they're discharged. So just to finish off, this model also homes in on exactly what a multidisciplinary approach is. So different teams coming together to ensure a safe discharge and more importantly, to prevent a failed discharge. So I hope you found this case useful. If you have any questions, drop me a message. I tried to shorten the case as much as I possibly could to fit it into this 10 minutes. So if you do want to know a bit more about the specifics of the case, then do get into touch. Thanks for listening.